Amen. Be seated, please. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 26. As we continue our journey through this marvelous book, Matthew chapter 26. starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up, will be be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests The elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. She poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus Aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve whose name was Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. We're going to stop there, even though I have it marked to go a little further, and we'll pick up the rest of the passage in a later sermon. Let's pray, Lord, we do ask that you would give uh, illumination, that we would grow in our understanding of your scriptures but even more than grow in our understanding that we would grow in our love. Oh Lord, give us love. For Christ's sake, amen. Uh, I love uh, reading the Bible. I hope you do too, but I I love kind of some of those moments that I'm thinking about kind of like, how would it have been to be kind of sitting as a fly on the wall, watching 
how it happened. You know, if it was like a movie playing out or what the experience was like, you could imagine how this one would be if you're watching it in a movie. You'd have a, a giant record scratch in the middle of it, where, like, where it just gets unbelievably awkward. What a kind of great moment you have in the story as Jesus is interacting with kind of all of these different parties and people and it, you kind of see all of the different nefarious actions working behind the scenes in this really just kind of unbelievably socially awkward moment in the middle. These are the kind of passages that I can't wait to get to heaven and ask about and to <laughs> see the disciples like, what, what was going through your head when this happened? And to have that conversation without sin where they're not embarrassed and doesn't feel like I'm trying to shame them, but just to learn, like, what was God doing and how marvelous he is? Our task today as we look at Matthew chapter 26 and uh, both the nefarious actions of evil and also just the unbearable social uncomfortability, our task is going to be to contemplate the beauty and the wondrous power of the Lord Jesus we're going to look at the three different categories of people that he's kind of interacting with, either directly or indirectly in light of an opening summary statement, but to hopefully our task, our mission, is to think of him more highly and to think of him more beautiful when we're done. Matthew makes the point, in fact, uh, multiple of the synoptic gospels do, is this is a story taking place in light of all of his teachings. And this section here, he's been teaching in chapters 24 and 25, uh, uh, preparing his disciples for the process of his death. He's been teaching them, instructing them. A lot of his instruction has been uh, focused on their faithfulness and focused on uh, his um, uh, impending suffering. It's in light of that that we get this kind of opening uh, summary statement in verses 1 and 2, the announcement that kind of frames out the rest of this chapter and in some ways the rest of the book. You know, after two days, the Passover is coming. Now, Passover was their big, obvious annual religious feast. It's when they celebrated the Passover uh, back from Exodus where the Lord preserved his people in the 10 plagues. But it was celebrated both as a week-long feast and also with one specific feast day as part of it. So uh, the Jews, they really know how to party well. Like they, they did it an excellent job of it when they did. And for them, it'd take a whole week of it, uh, but then at part of that week-long celebration and festival have one specific day of delight. Jesus here, though, kind of gives explanation to them that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man, Son of Man that's his name for himself, his title that he's adopted from um, the Old Testament, highlighting his divine character and his human nature will be delivered up to be crucified. Now, as kind of modern Christians, a time in which we live, uh, that cross has lost its sting by God's mercy. And there are so many Christians in the world or those that profess the name of Christ and have been for the last 2,000 years that we've lost a bit of the indignity of what Jesus is saying. What he's proclaiming to them is that what's going to happen is that the pinnacle of religious fervor for the Jews at the high point of holiness in the year, of the pinnacle of what should be delight and relationship with God, they will execute the Lord Christ in the most horrible, embarrassing, 
shameful, undignified, torturous way that had yet been invented. You know this, many of you, but remind you of this. Rome, not exactly known for their kindness, not known for being gentle and merciful, had even made law that you couldn't execute Roman citizens this way because it's too horrible. It is a horrible way to die. Jesus has been telling his disciples uh, at this point for weeks, but in the section we're in, uh, for several hours as he's been teaching over the, the last bit here, that he's going to die, but here adds that little nugget at the end of, oh yeah, by the way, it's not just going to be a good death. It's going to be the worst death. It's going to be the death that only the worst of criminals can face, the death that only the worst of the worst could possibly ever engineer a situation to have to be confronted with. He would be crucified. And it's important that we kind of begin to think about this. Again, our task here is to contemplate the beauty of the Lord Jesus. Is, uh, this is not the statement of a reactionary who's getting outmaneuvered by his opponent. Right? This is not the statement of a man who's in the middle of a chess game and has observed that his opponent is a better player. And is like, oh no, I'm going to end up losing this, I can already tell. That's not what this statement is from the Lord Jesus. This is a statement of his battle plan. This is an explanation of his victory to his disciples. This is an explanation of the events that he himself is ordering. This is information given to them so that they will marvel over the next several days and weeks and months and years. So that some of them, when they themselves are crucified, would be able to remember, he told me this is how he would go. And I can go this way as well. It's important that we kind of even beginning here contemplate the wisdom of Christ. The magnificence and the power. I love to think about this. I'll be honest, growing up in the church, I uh, slipped into that faulty way of thinking to think that, that Christ was in some ways the victim only. And certainly he was. They murdered him. But he was the commander of the armies of the Lord with a perfect battle plan being implemented perfectly. Nothing able to frustrate it. This is a statement of victory even now that he's making to his disciples, though they themselves would not be able to understand it. Matthew is a master storyteller in how he frames this chapter. It, it really, in many ways, it reads very much like a movie we would think of today. Giving the commander-in-chief the opportunity to describe his uh, agenda, his game plan for winning the war. What is his battle tactic? Well, it will be to go to the cross in just a matter of days in the middle of the Passover. Which is a pretty amazing thing because you don't exactly... Um, how to say this, it would not have been necessarily easy to get yourself crucified. Crucifixion, as I said, was only reserved for the worst of the worst. You would either have to be exceedingly wronged or do a lot of horrible things to be crucified, but to control the timing of it would have been even more mystifying. Much less to be crucified by the Jews. They didn't even have that power. 
The statement that he's saying here is so unbearably complicated in its execution, I don't even think the disciples would have been able to fully appreciate it. How could a man know or control his own death in such a way? I mean, most of us, we've already learned in some form or fashion that death is one of the very few things in life that is so abundantly clear we have no control over. We can't influence it. Can't stop it from happening. Yet the Lord is in charge over it, the Lord Christ. In just a matter of days, the Passover is coming, and in that time, the Lord Jesus would be crucified as part of his perfect plan to redeem the people of God. And again, you can kind of think in movie terms today, the camera would kind of pan and, you know, go through some sort of effect to take the viewer from not where Jesus is speaking now to the the den of his enemies. The chief priests and the elders of the people are gathered. And the problem here already is we see where they're gathered. They're not just gathered in some kind of hidden dungeon the way that, you know, we think evil villains are supposed to be maniacally planning all sorts of nefarious things from some darkened, you know, disgusting, moldy dungeon. Now, actually, they're in the palace of the high priest. The enemies of God are gathered not in the most horrible and awful of places, but they're gathered in the place that the worship of God was supposed to be coming from. Or the high priest of the Jews was supposed to be, the man who was supposed to be faithful in leading the Jews to worship Jehovah, Yahweh, the God that had revealed himself to them in the entirety of the Old Testament. Yet unfortunately, I guess for them, rather than being part of the heroes in the story, rather than being part of the good guys that are working on behalf of Christ behind the scenes, the camera pans to them, you can imagine, and instead they're in the middle of a conversation of evil. They're swore they're plotting together. How do we get rid of this Jesus? And we find out from the other Gospels exactly, other parts here, why exactly they hate him. They hate him because they know that he has claimed to be God. He's made that claim, he's made it abundantly clear, and they hate him for it. Because it's a conflict of power. Well, if Jesus is God, (laughs) well, he's the high priest and not Caiaphas or Annas, who's gone before him. If Jesus is God, he's the one who's in charge of the entire worship ceremony and worship tradition, for he is the God who is to be worshiped. If Jesus is God, his word is the ultimate word and not the word written or controlled or shaped by these priests. If Jesus is God, he is the one who is in charge of it all. And it might be easy for us to say, well, I mean, okay, maybe you know, it wasn't abundantly clear that Jesus is God. I mean, he said it, but maybe we don't believe it. Well, the problem for them is that he had literally just raised a man from the dead a couple of miles to the east of him, which is just tremendously inconvenient. Because when a man says that he's God and then shows that he has power over death, something that none of us do, well, you kind of have to believe him. And so the issue here is not, interestingly, that they don't know who Jesus is. The issue is that they do. 
They know exactly who he is. They know that he is a man who claims to be God and has the power that only God himself has. And they hate him because he threatens to upset their safe and tidy lives. And I'd love to be able to kind of say that like, you know, they're this kind of comedy villain that we can have no kind of similarity to today, but unfortunately I think you would kind of see pretty quickly that's, that's just not true. How often have we found ourselves, perhaps when we were unbelievers, perhaps you might find yourself in this situation now where you resent the Lord for upsetting your safe, suburban, wealthy lifestyle. That he, he challenges you to spend your money differently. He challenges you to spend your emotions differently. That he challenges you to spend your time differently. That he challenges you not to be captivated by your pleasures, but to live a, a life of sacrifice. That he challenges you not to be comfortable, focused on yourself. That he challenges you to put the needs of others ahead of your own and to consider others more highly than yourselves. He, he upsets our life. It's so easy for us to kind of tailor make a life where we're the center of the universe. We don't take a a geocentric view of the universe where the earth is the center or a heliocentric where the sun is the center. Take a (laughs) me-centric. I'm the center. That's why all you people are inconvenient in some fashion, right? If you're not orbiting this center star, you're just in the way. And the problem here is that they're being confronted with the reality of they've got a world built where they're the center, where everything kind of is revolving around to benefit them, and if they don't like it, they try to get rid of it. And here they have a man saying, I am God sent from God, and I have the power of life and death, and they can't handle it. I love how you can also see they're cowards in the process. Well, calculated cowards, I guess. We're going to get rid of him. We're going to kill him. You know, this guy who can resurrect people, you know, in a world in which modern medicine's not very good at the time. They don't really have a good plan for dealing with things other than just wait out the fever and hope it doesn't kill you. The one guy who literally can heal the dead they want to get rid of doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but okay, fair enough. So they have to plan to do it by stealth because everybody else wants him alive, if for nothing else, than his medical benefits. This guy has a better medical plan than anybody else offering around. He can heal the sick, raise the dead. Crowds want him around as long as possible. He's the only hope they have. So get rid of him by stealth and done in darkness. In fact, actually, I love how they even acknowledge We'll wait till our religious feast is over. General rule of thumb? Anytime you're having to say to yourself, well, I'll wait till God isn't present, bad idea with whatever you're going to do. Right? If you ever find yourself in a situation where like, I'll wait till it's not Sunday, please don't. Just, just think about what you're doing. Or I'll wait till we're, you know, we're done reading the Bible and then I'll do this. Can, just push pause and think about whatever you're going to do. Anytime you find yourself thinking that thought process, oh boy, 
stop and reflect. But I love how you get to see, again, there's a tension introduced here because Jesus has just laid out his battle plan, right? It's a couple of days till Passover, and they're going to crucify me. And the villains are introduced in the story, and what do they say? We're going to kill him. We agree with Jesus on that. But, oh, yeah, by the way, there's no way we're going to do it during Passover. So already, even in the conflict, you're being introduced that Jesus has enemies that are trying to kill him, but they're not on board with his plan at all. Who's going to win? Is the infinitely wise Jesus going to win? Is it going to play out according to his plan, or are the villains going to win? Well, obviously, you know the answer, but it's still fun how the story is told. Not during the feast, lest the people riot. We don't want to upset the masses. We don't want to threaten our safe and tidy lifestyle. We don't want to upset our power. Friends, uh, I would lovingly and gently as pastor of this church kind of poke at us here a little bit. There are a lot of us that, I would say even a lot of parts of the Bible that we love because they're safe for us. They're safe for the the habits that we already have. They're safe the behaviors that we already practice. They're safe perhaps even for the culture in which we raise. But we tend to not perhaps like the passages that kind of shake us up, that force us out of our comfort and force us to contemplate, are we actually going to listen to the word of Christ? Are we actually going to be obedient? There's a scene jump that follows. It's, I think, designed to be a contrast. In Caiaphas, in the high priest's palace, you have the gathering of the priests and the elders and the scribes and all of those that should be worshiping Christ, those that know the Old Testament, those that should be obedient to Him, those that should be looking for the Messiah, those that have every bit of a head start on it. Think about most of those men would have had a substantial portion, if not all, of the Old Testament memorized. That's a lot of words, right? They knew it. They should be waiting for the king of kings to show up when Jesus says that he is the Messiah and shows proof of it. They should have been the ones that bowed the knee, but they don't. And so a scene changed to show who does. Now Jesus was at Bethany, a town not far removed. He's a a shocking statement that for most of us isn't terribly offensive. He's at the house of Simon the leper. Leprosy at this time was, you know, we think we've had a hard response to COVID. Their response to leprosy a million times worse. You were an outcast until you either died of the disease with your appendages falling off or you killed yourself because of loneliness. It's a horrible, horrible, horrible disease and a horrible treatment that they had to have was you were outcast to leper colonies, an awful thing, awful thing. Simon is one of the ones that Jesus has healed along the way. 
And so you think a man who had been living as an outcast, completely isolated and cut off from all human interaction, a man who had not been able to worship the Lord, a man who had not been able to go to synagogue, a man who had not felt the physical touch of another human being in who knows how long. Christ is healed. So Christ is staying at his house, and there's a party of some kind. They're having a big meal. It's, again, a very Jewish thing to do. They know how to do parties. They excel at them, and they've got a good one going here. You can imagine that it's probably a fairly substantially kind of a motley crew at this point. You've got the disciples, a bit uncouth perhaps, fishermen, hard-working guys by and large, you got some of his kind of core followers, tax collectors, people that would have been social outcasts that nobody likes. The leper, that's awkward. And who goes to the leper's house even after he's been healed? It's a mess of people. You probably imagine the resurrected guy is there. He lives right down the street. That's an awkward conversation, right? Hey, what was it like to be dead? Tell me about that. A weird conversation at the dining room table. And while they're in the middle of it, a woman walks up and takes probably a fairly um, not insignificant thing of perfume. A good guess is roughly a pound of perfume at this point. Shatters this white alabaster jar and proceeds to take the perfume inside and rub it through Jesus' hair and rub it on his clothes and rub it on his feet in the middle of dinner. And this is the part that I would, just, I would love to have been a fly on the wall and watch the reaction. We find out in another gospel, John actually tells us a, a bit more about this, uh, that she takes uh, the, the jar that she has here is uh, roughly a year's wages. That's how much it costs. So, I mean, again, for our community, think about basically taking, we'll say, for our community, we'll make up a number, say a $100,000 jar of perfume that she's spends on Jesus in one meal. A hundred grand up in one brief moment. I would love to have watched the faces in there. I mean, again, you imagine it's a, a kind of a rough crew of folks, maybe not the most cultured, perhaps not exactly clean. Maybe they've been traveling on the road, dirty folks, a dead guy who's no longer dead, and then all of a sudden everything gets she shows up, can you imagine playing with Jesus' hair, rubbing it through his hair to make sure it settles in, rubbing it on his feet? Unbearably awkward. <laughs> it makes me awkward just thinking about it right here. We actually find out from another gospel writer, this is actually Mary. That's Mary of Bethany. This is the sister of Martha, also the sister of Lazarus, the dead guy. She has every motivation. He saved her brother, the one who was dead but didn't stay that way. You can also imagine, I, I suspect she's probably crying as she does it. And she ponders the significance of what's going on. And you see this just spectacular contrast between the enemies of Jesus who are inconvenienced at what he's doing and they, so they try to kill him and a woman who is, we might say, the embodiment of gratitude. Embodiment of gratitude. 
She spent more than a lifetime's worth of savings for one moment. One moment. And I want you to, again, kind of emotionally process, what would you have done if you'd been sitting at that table? I'm going to go and tell you right now, I would have been in absolute panic. Because I'm I'm not going to lie to you and pretend I would have done something there. I would have thought, there are about a million different ways I could have spent that money in a way that would have been better. Still spent on Jesus. The man doesn't have a home. He's a poor traveling teacher. That could have been enough for him to eat and teach for the next how long? Think about how many times those disciples had had to skip meals. We see often they're walking on Sunday and Jesus is teaching and they have to pick heads of grain as they walk because they have no food. And here this woman shows up with perfume of all things. House, nice. Food, nice. Clothing would have been nice. You know, some of what we might call necessities would have been nice. Perfume, awesome. That's fantastic. Lifetime savings for perfume, fantastic. You see, that's actually the exact response that the disciples give, right? I'm in good company, I guess. Hopefully, if you're honest, you would be too. The disciples, verse 8, were indignant. I love how the Bible understates things understates things. I, I suspect indignant is not probably a good comment, like, like completely confused to the point of breaking a sweat, they're so upset. Why this waste? Seriously, why this waste? It would take you a lifetime to save that much money, and you're spending it on this? And I love how they they do offer at least a good thing that's not entirely self-beneficial. I mean, you could have spent it on the poor. You have to admit some of them would have been sitting there like, I was starving a week ago. You could have at least fed us. And and I love how it, it exposes, again, so quickly in some ways, our love of convenience, our love of our own approach to life, our, our own love of our own mind. The disciples are, are frustrated with her because she's given a staggering gift to Christ Jesus, and they're upset that she didn't give a better one. And I'm like, what an amazing assessment of the heart of the disciples, and I already told you my own heart. Because I would have been in that boat too. Of getting frustrated that her gift doesn't measure up to the way they want it to be. Their gift, her gift doesn't measure up to what they perceive the good life to be. Her gift doesn't measure up to what they think is most important. And you see what's happened here is actually she's got the better of them. Because she's actually remembered what Jesus has been teaching the entire time. And that the return on investment for anything spent for Christ is infinitely greater. I say the disciples are upset because they see she's wasting money because she's spending it on something that has no benefit. That's really what it is. is (laughs) Really, it's actually terrible when you think about it from that perspective, isn't it? They're upset because she's spending it on something that has no benefit, Jesus. 
She spent it on Jesus, and they're upset at that. But what I think she understands is that the return on investment is infinitely higher. And friends, I would lovingly challenge you with this, is to think about how you spend the life that God has given you. He's given you your days. He knows how many there are. He's given you your breaths. He knows how many there are. He's given you your children. He knows how many there are. He's given you your dollars. He knows how many there are. You can choose how you wish to spend those. He's generous. He's given you freedom. I'm going to be honest. I think a vast majority of us might find ourselves in a very similar situation to the disciples here where we want to spend our money well, but we want to spend our life well, and we want to spend our days and energy well, and we want to spend the family relationships and the the closeness that we have with people well, but it's maybe perhaps not the ultimate good, just a, a lesser good. Instead of this kind of all-consuming, all-encompassing delight in Christ. I think this is, I, I suspect, one of the greatest challenges for Christians in this great nation that we live in, as we live in I've said it before, I think the greatest nation in human history, we certainly live in the most affluent nation in human history, and we have the easiest lives in human history. And um, sadly, I think as the, the unfortunate byproduct of the ease is that it, it's so natural for us to just fall in love with this, to fall in love with the things of this place, and the foods of this place, and the pleasures of this place, and the joys and delights of this place, and to not be captivated by the presence of Christ. Again, I think it shows in how easily we are preoccupied with this life, and how hard it is for so many of us to think about the life to come. I mean, in fact, for many of us, the only things that really force us into that way of thinking is old age and sickness. And periodically, the Lord gives us some you know, horrible stomach bug or our 70s to challenge us and to prepare us and to you know, force us to contemplate, no, is this life the good life or is that life the good life? To be with Christ. The disciples are frustrated in fact, you get to see Jesus gives them a, a, a very tender, a very gentle rebuke, but actually in doing so, uh, I suspect praises Mary far more than we guess at the first reading. Love it. Leave her alone. That's the modern version of why do you trouble this woman? It's leave her alone. She's doing a good thing. She's doing a very good thing. And poor are always going to be with you. That's actually a lesser good than what she's done. She's giving to a thing that's going to pass away to Christ himself. But interestingly, in verse 12, I I think actually he's praising her in a way that um, is really significant. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Remember who this is. Mary. Mary. 
of Mary and Martha, of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. She is the one who has seen more than most, but interestingly, she is marked out in the scriptures as being one of the best listeners in his ministry. In fact, actually, we find where is she most often kind of associated is at his feet listening. I suspect what's happened here is that she's actually figured out that he's about to die, and so she started the burial ritual that's going to happen later. And we find out actually that in the future, she's one of the ones that is aggressively trying to take care of his body. It's like she's listened and she's understood this king is about to die and it's my job to take care of his body when he dies. She's understood what he's saying and she's taken it as her personal calling to be part of the the team of people that would care for that body when it ceases to be. She's also part of the ones that are there to interact with the resurrection at some point. Because I think she's listened and understood. It's not on her terms. It's not on the disciples' terms. It's not on the scribes and Pharisees' terms. It's on Christ Jesus' terms. Which is why he gives her that praise in verse 13. And this is a pretty cool statement. Truly, I say to you that wherever this gospel The good news of the life, death, resurrection of Christ Jesus is proclaimed in the whole world. What she has done will also be told in memory of her. And guess what? This morning, we are keeping Jesus' promise. The promise that the good news of Jesus would go out to the entirety of the world. And as part of that, that her story would go. Because Christ loves her and is praising her. What a a marvelous thing that even this morning... We fulfill the prophecy of Christ, the command of Christ, and can marvel at our sister who got it and obeyed, perhaps maybe even when the disciples didn't. It was a pretty special moment. You can again kind of think of the contrast. The villains, the most educated, the elite, the most powerful or hidden away in a palace, planning and, and plotting against Jesus. The disciples trained at the hand of Jesus are grumpy and upset. And a normal laywoman, uneducated but faithful, had sat at the feet of Jesus and listened and did the right thing. And in immediate contrast, again, is like another record scratch. The, the movie, the, what's happening? It's not over. You would think this is the end of the story. But Judas, oh no, Judas. We get the impression, certainly through other gospels as well as this, that he, the money is a bother. This is, I, I suspect it's her gift that it ultimately sticks in his craw. It's that she was willing to throw away so much money that he just can't get over it. And he understands that Jesus is important. He's been with him for a long time. But it's just so much money that he can't let it go. We don't know exactly how quickly after this. We do know that the devil comes to him and tempts him. We do know that it's his own thoughts in conjunction with the temptation of the forces of evil, but eventually it overwhelms him and he can't let it go. So the betrayer switches sides. 
He leaves the disciples, he leaves the good guys, and seeks out the villains to become one himself. And the amazing thing is you get to see even how he does it. His question shows so much about what his heart is perceiving. What will you give me to betray my master? What are you going to give me? He, he just got a year's worth of wages lit on fire in his midst, it seems. How much can I profit? How much can I profit? How much can I benefit? How much can I live the good life? How much can I make from this? Interestingly, we find out he makes the exact same price that was paid for a slave. He sells the Lord of life for the price of a slave. And friends, I, I suspect it's easy for us to kind of throw stones at Judas. It's easy for us to condemn him. We're like, oh, well, I would never do that to Jesus. I love that. If you actually look in the ESV, literally the next column, the guy who says that does that. Right? The next column over what's going to be one of the greatest men in church history literally does that. He betrays the Lord Jesus as well. So I'd love to pretend like we would never do that. Sad reality, I have no confidence in you nor myself that we wouldn't. And so as a result, I suspect it would be a good thing if we at least considered the temptation that Judas falls prey to. What can I get out of it? What can I get out of it? Right now, in this moment, in this life, in this time, in this moment in history, what can I get out of it? It's interesting. He's got the Lord of life in his midst. He's watched more miracles than you could imagine. Been blessed in so many ways, but you can kind of get the impression that it just grown so tiresome to him. He's looking for the good life now, and he's willing to give up Christ so that his life would be a little bit better. What can I get out of it? Instead of what can I give to Christ? Instead of what, what can I give to my Savior? Well, instead of what can I give to the one who has given me the good life? Instead of what can I give to the Lord of lords? And what can I do in obedience? I suspect that actually is a probably more beneficial thing for us to contemplate because the sad reality of it is for those of us in the room that are already Christians, there's a real serious temptation for us to say, even though I've been redeemed, what can I get out of this in this life? And the amazing thing is that the scriptures are filled with God's promises that he does bless us in this life. But we are told to seek first his kingdom we're, we're supposed to seek first Christ and all that he's doing. We're supposed to seek first even that life to come and the benefits and the blessings of this life are added later. C.S. Lewis, not a theologian, interesting philosopher, some things good, some things not quite so much, I think has a very helpful point in this regard where he says when you take second order loves, 
and make them first order. So when you take secondary things that you love and you move them to the top of the chain and they become first and most important, you lose everything. But when you take first order loves and make them first, you gain everything that follows. And he's talking certainly about that seek ye first the kingdom concept of if, if you take those secondary things, money, a, a pleasurable life, good food, easy living, being freed from the difficulties of poverty or of other things, if you take that and you make it first, you lose it all. But if you take Christ and his kingdom and you make it first, that's how you end up with radical moments where you're willing to throw away a life savings to benefit Christ and his church. Now, it's not a scold. There are some of you here that are absolutely marvelous at that. I certainly have been the recipient of it. Radical generosity and obedience in ways that just melt my brain. Those of you that excel at that, praise God for you. I give thanks to the Lord for you. For those of us that perhaps it's a little bit harder for us to see our time as belonging to Christ, a tool given for his kingdom. For those of us that are seeing our emotions as tools that are given to us for Christ's kingdom. Our money, our health, our children, our friendships, our intellect, our sense of humor, the ability to encourage one another, everything that he's given you He's given you for a purpose in his kingdom. Which is where we actually get back to how the whole section started. Jesus makes a declaration. It's Passover week. It's time for me to die. His enemies disagree. Guess what? They're wrong. He wins. His disciples get indignant. They get upset. They're wrong. He wins. Judas seeks to betray him, and in doing so, this is the most amazing thing of it all. In even betraying the master, he's one of the ones that is most essentially important in making sure that Jesus goes to the cross. He's that secondary means that Christ uses to go to the cross. And what is the byproduct? The byproduct is that here we are, 1,000, 2,000 years later, contemplating not a dead Savior, but a risen Savior who has been victorious and is victorious and will be victorious and shares that victory with me and with you and with all of his people. May it be that our love would increase, not a love of convenience, not a love of pleasure, the flesh or the good life even, but may it be our love of Christ and our love of his kingdom so that we would be ready for his second coming. That ministry of humiliation is then replaced by that ministry of exaltation and we would be ready to participate. Father in heaven, we do admit our frailty. We do love the good life. I know I do. And uh, unfortunately, we define the good life in terms of this world and not in terms of your kingdom. And so we do confess our sins and ask for your forgiveness. And Lord, we ask, O oh God, that you would give us love for you. For Christ's sake, amen.